Welcome to JPHMP Direct Talk, a podcast series that brings you conversations that bridge the gap between public health research and practice. Today I'm talking with three of the authors of a special issue of the Journal of Public Health Management and Practice, which focuses on HRSA's investment in preventive medicine. Joining the program is Deborah Porterfield. She is currently a medical consultant at the North Carolina Division of Public Health, where she has served on the COVID response since last year. Previously, she was an associate professor and director of the Preventive Medicine Residency Program at UNC Chapel Hill. Also joining is Linda Hill, Distinguished Professor and Interim Assistant Dean of the Herbert Wertheim School of Public Health at UC San Diego. And finally, Lisa Miller, a Professor of Epidemiology, the Director of the Preventive Medicine Residency Program, and the Associate Dean for Public Health Practice at the Colorado School of Public Health. Thank you all for joining and welcome. As always, before we dive into our conversation, we would like to thank our sponsors, the DeBeaumont Foundation, old solutions for healthier communities. Learn more at DeBeaumont.org. So Deborah, I'd like to start with you since you're actually serving as a COVID-19 medical consultant with the North Carolina Department of Health and Human Services. Tell us a little about the roles that encompass the public health workforce and how they're different or distinct from what we think of as the healthcare workforce. So as I'm sure we're all aware, the public health workforce is very broad and it can be very challenging to define. A few roles that we would consider part of the public health workforce as opposed to healthcare would be things like an epidemiologist, a medical examiner, a health promotion program coordinator, or a sanitation inspector. Most of the time, we think of the public health workforce as those persons who are employed by local, state, tribal, territorial, or federal governmental public health agencies, and that helps us to solidify our definitions. But we might also consider persons who are in education, industry, foundations, or nonprofits in roles that improve the public's health to be part of this workforce. Uh, one way to distinguish you know, public health workforce from healthcare workforce is to think about the difference between providing individual patient care versus an individual who is delivering what we call the three core functions or the 10 essential services of public health to a group of persons. Although there is some individual patient care that takes place in local public health departments, that work is embedded in that organization's larger goal to deliver public health services to a group of individuals or to a population. And I think that's the best way to distinguish the public health workforce from healthcare workforce. So what are the areas of greatest need in the public health workforce? Where do we have the greatest shortages? Yeah, this is Deborah again. So certainly everything has changed since the pandemic in 2020. I am not aware of any assessment that we've been able to do of current workforce needs. I'm actually employed right now in North Carolina in the Division of Public Health. My anecdotal experience of working here points to roles such as case investigators and contact tracers and communicable disease staff at our local health department level, including surge staff to deliver vaccine. At the state level, positions such as the medical examiners, epidemiologists, our lab staff, and experienced project managers to run these programs. And everywhere, local and state, what we really need are data managers and data scientists to give us the information we need to respond to the pandemic. So again, right now, I think this is mostly anecdotal. Prior to the pandemic, though, we do have lots of data. We know, first of all, that 
public health workforce was declining prior to the pandemic. And just before, in, well, actually in 2015, we have some great data. The biggest shortages we had at that time at the state level, epidemiologists, lab workers, public health informatics, and specialists in things like licensure, regulation, and enforcement. So we look at this data in terms of, you know, where we know the shortages were right before the pandemic, and it really is heartbreaking to think about entering the pandemic with these kind of shortages. At the local level, again, the data shows positions like disease intervention specialists and public health nurses, program managers, business and financial operations, and administrative support staff. So these are the positions that state and local health departments prior to the pandemic were reporting shortages. For this journal, I was part of a paper. It was in the May-June issue, and we were looking specifically at the preventive medicine physician workforce. And what we found is that the, although the absolute numbers of preventive medicine physicians have been a little bit increasing over time, when you look at the physician to population ratio, that has been decreasing since 1970. So fewer preventive medicine physicians per population. And in addition, there's a there's a critical maldistribution that disproportionately affects underserved areas and especially rural populations. Going back to the question of, you know, where are the shortages? Another way to think about this is in terms of competencies. So we need more people, but we also need the public health workforce to have a much broader set of competencies. And some of those gaps include things like systems thinking and strategic planning. And there's so much work that's going on that hopefully after the pandemic, we'll be able to resume in terms of building these competencies across our entire workforce. So Deborah, how would addressing these workforce shortages improve health, preparedness, and resilience? Well, that's a big question, and it's certainly going to be hard to point to any specific data or evidence which would show if we build the workforce or train the people in a certain way, we're going to get better health. But we actually have a terrific opportunity to gather this kind of evidence right now. The new federal appropriations, there's $7.6 billion from HHS which is specifically for public health workforce. And this is intended to support state, local, and territorial public health departments with any kind of positions and training that are required to prevent, prepare, and respond to COVID-19. So all of those positions that I just mentioned, the known workforce shortages, hopefully we'll be able to address with these funds. So again, we have a great opportunity to evaluate how will this funding improve our COVID response. Similarly, I don't think we have any data, but it's perfectly intuitive that supplementing the public health workforce is going to have an immediate impact on one specific problem we know we have at hand, which is burnout and lack of resilience amongst our public health workforce. There was a recent MMWR publication which indicated that over half of the public health workforce reported recent symptoms of a mental health condition, such as depression, anxiety, or PTSD. And hopefully, again, with this infusion of funds, and new hiring, we will begin to address this critical problem in our public health workforce. So let's talk funding for just a minute. The American Rescue Plan includes billions of dollars of funding for public health workforce development, but how does this emergency funding differ from standard funding sources? And how does it impact the ability to sustain a public health workforce long-term? Yes, so this is Deborah again. This critical funding is going to do so much for public health, and yet it is only two-year funding. And that represents a major challenge to states and local agencies to address what we've been talking about in terms of the chronic workforce shortages, in addition to the current acute COVID-19-related needs. 
So in North Carolina, we are using this funding to kickstart the process of a shift towards identifying gaps in and providing funding for what are called the foundational public health capabilities. So these are infrastructure, foundation, the necessary subcomponents of public health organizations, on top of which programs in different content areas, such as COVID-19 response or tobacco or prenatal health are built. So again, these foundational capabilities are the knowledge, skills, and abilities needed to successfully implement the basic public health protections, which are key to community health. So again, in North Carolina, we're hoping to use this, these ARPA funds for both hiring and training in a way that will create a more sustained impact. And we hope, again, to be able to demonstrate some of this in our evaluations. But this is going to be a challenge for North Carolina and all states in terms of using this short-term funding to create sustained impact. And Linda, what is the state of federal funding for preventive medicine residency programs? So just a little bit of background. Funding for residents is generally covered by Medicare, CMS, GME funds, with the exception of pediatrics. Preventive medicine is written into the language in that policy, either as a primary or secondary residency, which is unusual that they will support a secondary residency if it's in preventive medicine. However, GME funds are generally controlled by hospitals, and GME was capped in 1996. Hospitals are loath to share those GME dollars, especially since they've been capped, with residents not working in the hospital since much of preventive medicine training and curriculum is taking place in the community in a variety of settings. HRSA has been funding preventive medicine residencies since 1985. However, the funding's only covered a fraction of the residencies to date, unlike their generous funding of pediatrics. However, there is some good news on that front. The latest funding update we heard is that the House has allocated an increase of $3 million for the program for a total of $11 million. This is the highest program level since 2016, so we're really excited by that. The Senate has yet to approve it, but that should move us in the right direction in having HRSA funding for preventive medicine residencies. And Lisa, you direct the preventive medicine residency program at the Colorado School of Public Health. Is there anything you'd like to add? I just wanted to add one other point that is a bit unique when it comes to preventive medicine residencies, and that is that that training also involves usually getting a master's of public health degree or a similar degree. And so that adds an additional burden of funding that's needed. And at some institutions, that degree can cost up to $55,000 or more. So that that's an additional need for funding that is on top of what's typically needed in other residencies. And Lisa, what's the value in training physicians with prevention and public health skills in residency versus providing these skills for physicians or other specialties post-residency? So a residency in public health and general preventive medicine is a two-year program in which physicians really have an immersive experience in this area. So not only do they get the academic training of that MPH degree or something similar, but they also get to apply those public health and preventive medicine skills in rotations along experts in the field who are guiding them. I do think there's a lot of interest in these types of skills from other physicians, 
but it really is hard to get them without this combination of academic and experiential training. Some of our public health and general preventive medicine residents in Colorado come to us after having already completed another residency or sometimes even another fellowship. Sometimes they've done, say, an infectious disease fellowship because they're interested in infectious disease, but then they realize what they really want and need are these public health and preventive medicine skills to do the work they wanna do. Other times physicians come to preventive medicine after having been out in the practice world for a while and deciding that they really can't address these bigger population or social issues that they want to address one patient at a time. So it's possible to get additional training if you're interested in this field, but I really think that the preventive medicine residency combines that training in a way that is most effective. And Lisa, let me just stay with you for a minute. Should we be integrating some of the fundamental skills learned in preventive medicine residency into undergraduate medical education? Yes, I do think we should be integrating some of these fundamental skills in the preventive medicine residency into undergraduate medical education. And I think it's helpful to give a little context. When we think about the root cause of the leading causes of death, most of which are chronic diseases, it's really apparent that we need to focus our training more on lifestyle and preventive medicine content. So when we think about this, there are really four modifiable health risk factors, which are lack of physical activity, poor nutrition, tobacco use, and excessive alcohol consumption that are responsible for much of the illness, suffering, and early death related to these chronic diseases. So in addition to the pathophysiology and the treatment of these chronic diseases, we really need to teach about prevention in undergraduate medical education. And I wanna just bring your attention to the fact that the American College of Preventive Medicine has recently convened a group of stakeholders to make recommendations about integrating this content into undergraduate medical education. And they've outlined recommendations in a white paper that can be found on the American College of Preventive Medicine website. And I, I really do agree with the stakeholders' goals that they articulate in the white paper. You know, they say that we need to ensure medical students receive necessary training in behavior change, nutrition, physical activity, sleep, stress management, social connectedness, and the abuse of addictive substances to really effectively support patients to address the basic factors that are impacting their health. We have initiated a health and society curriculum here at our Colorado School of Medicine that begins to address some of these areas. And in addition, I think there's a really important addition, which is a focus on equity and understanding the impact of racism in health. So this is happening in some places, but I think a much more systematic effort is really needed. This is Deborah. I would love to just add to Lisa's point. I absolutely agree with everything that she said. I can think of a few other reasons why we want to include some of these elements in med student curriculum. One being we want to recruit more medical students into our field. We have a problem that not everybody knows about preventive medicine, and we are happy to pick up some of these trainees after they've already done a training in another field. 
but it would be wonderful if we had more exposure um, to medical students and they had more exposure to us earlier on. Another reason to include some of these skills and content area in med student curriculum is because, you know, some of these prevention, you know, just the knowledge about root causes, some of these population health skills, these are things that all physicians need. And the more we normalize and socialize uh, these skills and bring them into the content area of all of medical practice, I think that also serves to further our field and helps to uh, elevate our status, make us more known. So I think we have a lot of reasons to advocate and work towards including more of preventive medicine into the medical school curriculum. So you mentioned the need for greater visibility among medical students. What types of roles do preventive medicine physicians play in the public health workforce? This is Lisa. I can comment on that. So preventive medicine physicians really work at all levels of public health. And when I'm thinking about levels, I'm thinking about local public health agencies where they might be the medical director who is just responsible for the medical aspects of the programs in the public health department, or they could be the executive director over the whole agency. They could be working at the state level in state public health, where again, they might direct specific health programs, lead epidemiology group, or work specifically in clinical public health settings like sexually transmitted infection or tuberculosis clinics. They could also work at the national level. So we have preventive medicine physicians that work in many roles in places like uh, the CDC or the FDA or HRSA and many other federal health-related agencies. Then if you think even bigger, there are also global health opportunities for physicians to implement public health programs in other countries. And in my experience, preventive medicine physicians can play a really important role in bridging the gap between physicians in the community who are taking care of individual patients and the public health agencies who are concerned with the health of populations. Sometimes this connection between the two isn't very robust and those systems are not well connected. And preventive medicine physicians really can be that connection. So this is Linda. I agree with everything that you said and, and would also like to say that preventive medicine physicians contribute to the public health workforce outside of traditional public health agencies working, as you said, in, in clinical settings such as community health centers, student health services, and other clinical agencies that really take care of populations and can bring this population-based approach to the clinical care, looking at the larger needs of a population and creating programs that respond to those needs, looking at the epidemiology of the populations that are served, quality improvement, needs assessment, and so on, as well as serving as a bridge to the public health. So, Linda, how do preventive medicine physicians interact with physicians trained in other disciplines and other healthcare professionals? Could these preventive medicine physicians be considered a force multiplier for public health? So, public health physicians work in settings with multidisciplinary teams quite beyond those that physicians working in clinical health settings do, albeit they also work uh, across sectors. Because of the places where our public health physicians are working, including public health departments, but also community health centers, worksite health promotion, community-based agencies, and schools, 
they're coming in contact with all of the professionals that are working in those settings. I think it might be easier to understand if I give you an example of one place where I have preventive medicine residents and preventive medicine physicians working here in San Diego. We are providing screening and stabilization programs for two asylum seeker shelters responding to the increase in asylum seekers coming across the border at the San Diego Baja border and having to address the issues of staying safe in uh, an era with COVID-19. Within that setting, our own team is very multidisciplinary. We incorporate lay community health workers, nurses, clinicians from other disciplines. We have our medical directors and coordinators. But within the agency, we just have a broad range of professionals involved. That includes our local and state public health departments, our California Emergency Medical Services Administration, California Office of Emergency Services, California Department of Social Services, our, our colleagues at uh, Customs and Border Protection, our colleagues in Baja who are providing care for these individuals in camps before they cross, and last but not least, our, our humanitarian agency hosts, Catholic Charities and Jewish Family Services. So our residents and public health physicians are interacting with this group, coordinating care, developing protocols together, and, and most importantly, taking care of the asylum seekers who come through the agency and uh, keeping them in the public safe. How do preventive medicine physicians contribute to the prevention of future pandemics like COVID-19? Hi, this is Lisa. I can take that one. So I want to focus first on on our residents in preventive medicine and how they contributed. So many of us who train preventive medicine physicians were struck immediately when COVID began by the way that our residents were able to just immediately contribute to the efforts being made to combat the COVID-19 pandemic. And once we started talking to each other, we realized that they contributed to all levels of the response and in almost every way possible, from directly caring for patients to being part of the public health leadership structure for a state. They were involved in contact tracing and testing and really every aspect of the response. And I think it was because of the unique combination of skills that our residents have, including public health, epidemiology, emergency preparedness, clinical care, and this interprofessional um, experience that they have, that they were really able to put their training to work. I think it's also of note that our physicians who graduated during the pandemic have also been hired by public health agencies to continue to contribute to the response, which as we know, unfortunately, is ongoing. So half of the physicians that have graduated during the pandemic have been hired to continue to contribute. Um, and these physicians, in addition to those preventive medicine physicians that are already working in the field, will be the ones who will help the public health systems learn lessons from this pandemic and ready ourselves for the next one. I don't think there is any one workforce that can prevent future pandemics, but having more physicians with the skills to bridge between clinical care and public health 
to work across these professions and, and with the skills that our preventive medicine physicians have will certainly be a benefit. And finally, as we wrap up our conversation, how do we help create a more diverse public health workforce? What steps can be taken in the recruitment and training process to increase the number of minorities, women, and LGBTQ individuals in leadership positions within the public health workforce? So this is Linda. Um, I'd like to tackle that question. I think it starts in looking at the pipeline and trying to provide support and opportunities for the pipeline as far back as we can go, even into high school, which I've certainly done. Looking at undergraduate education, uh, providing rotations for undergraduates who are perhaps doing field work is a way of attracting individuals to the field. In terms of attracting a more diverse workforce, what I found is that providing field work in areas that include a diverse population, perhaps underserved settings, and uh, creating an opportunity for the students to participate in those settings has been very attractive to a diverse student body. Equally, in the MPH program, creating these field work opportunities in, in a variety of community settings, which often address issues of equity and disparities. In medical school, we already talked about the importance of having public health curriculum in medical school, but I think we can also attract a diverse population of medical students to public health by providing electives. I precept medical students in my community health center, which is a 100% economically disadvantaged population and a very diverse patient population. For years, I've been having first and second year medical students to rotate in this setting, which has then attracted them to go on to practice in those settings. It's been shown in uh, research studies that residents who feel comfortable practicing in a setting with a diverse population are more likely to choose that as a career in the future. Equally, in bringing residents into preventive medicine, having created these electives and rotations within our residency program, we also reach out, of course, to our applicants, which include medical students looking at internships and then subsequent residencies. But in preventive medicine, we also get residents who have completed other residencies but are really attracted to a population health approach that addresses the social determinants of health, for example, or mid-career individuals who feel that they're putting Band-Aids on problems that could be addressed at a population level. Again, by placing residents in diverse population settings, underserved settings, having institutional policies that address equity and a curriculum that addresses disparities also attracts a diverse public health workforce to the field. This is Deborah. One thing I would love to add to Linda's answer is for program directors and educators out there to look for synergies within their institution and to support the institutional goals everything that Linda just said in terms of policy, the training environment, you know, all the ways that we can make our training institutions better places to train a diverse workforce. 
at UNC Chapel Hill, where I was formerly a, a residency director, there were a number of programs, some of which were funded by HRSA, which also funded our residency. So again, we looked for those synergies where we could work together with other residencies, with the medical school leadership, all of us working together with the same kind of goals. And um, I think those kind of synergies are critical, especially since some of the things we're talking about do require institutional level change. And so we need to work together to achieve those goals. This feature has been brought to you by JPHMP Direct, the companion site of the Journal of Public Health Management and Practice. To learn more about the research discussed in this conversation, read the special issue on HRSA's investment in preventive medicine, available online at journals.lww.com forward slash JPHMP. Thank you.